Hello, everyone, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Barry Botino, Associate Editor at Safety and Health, and with me as always are my fellow Associate Editors, Alan Ferguson and Kevin Drewley. Happy September, gentlemen. Happy September. Same to you. We welcome you all to the September 2023 episode, number 43 in our podcast's history, the same number as NASCAR legend Richard Petty. Thanks for spending some time with us wherever you are in podcast land. We'll try not to speed too much through this episode as fast as the king used to. In fact, to slow things down, we know many of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession, and we want to hear about it for the My Story feature in our magazine. Submit your personal stories about how you got into the safety field by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org. To view past My Story entries and catch up on all the news from around the safety world, visit our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. In this month's podcast, Alan will share the details of his feature story on aerial lifts in our deep dive segment. We'll also be joined by our NSC colleague, Ryan Peach, who will discuss fleet safety and define exactly what a fleet is in our five questions with interview. And we'll share lessons from this month in our aptly named, What Did We Learn segment. Is everybody ready? There's a green flag. Let's go. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we examine a feature story from the latest issue of Safety and Health Magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. In our September issue, Alan covers the topic of aerial lifts, starting with the OSHA definition and expanding from there to explore five facts surrounding their safe use. So with that, Alan, could you please channel your inner Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warns and lift us up where we belong, that is, into the thick of this latest Deep Dive. I sure can, Kevin. Thank you so much for that intro. Um, So just to give some insight, the idea behind this story was to come up with um, some more easily digestible content than just a straight story. And that's why I originally went with five facts you may or may not know about aerolifts with the may not in parentheses that got changed and probably for the better. Um, So what are aerial lifts? Uh, OSHA defines them as any vehicle-mounted device used to elevate personnel, and they can be powered or manually operated and are, quote, considered to be aerial lifts whether or not they can rotate around a primary vertical axis. Never thought you'd hear me say that, did you? Aerial lifts may include uh, lawyer voice, but are not limited to aerial ladders, vertical towers, extendable boom platforms, and articulating boom platforms. So first fact, according to OSHA, a scissor lift is not an aerial lift, and that's based on an August 2000 letter of interpretation. And that's because the OSHA standard for aerial lifts and constructions is based on a 1969 ANSI standard, uh, 92.2. Scissor lifts are considered scaffolds under OSHA regulations, and because they're mobile, the specific requirements for mobile scaffolds in the scaffold standard It's 1926.452W must be met. So fun fact number two, an aerial lift is not a defined term in ANSI's A92 standards, when that includes A92.20, A92.22, A92.24, and that's according to A92 committee chair Joshua Chard, who adds that an aerial lift is, quote, generally understood to be equivalent to the defined term mobile elevating work platform or MOOP 
that's how I, at least I pronounce it, M-E-W-P. Um, an aerial device, meanwhile, is a chassis-mounted elevating work platform, generally a truck. Alan, I appreciated the fact about scissor lifts not being aerial lifts. That is one I did not know. I know you've got more facts. Hit us with a couple more. <laughs> uh, these two facts are probably not surprising. Everyone needs training, not just operators, but um, so-called occupants in an aerial lift. And that training should include explanations of electrical fall and falling object hazards, procedure for dealing with hazards, recognizing and avoiding unsafe conditions in the work setting, instructions for correct operation of the lift, including maximum intended load and load capacity, demonstrations of the skill and knowledge needed to operate an aerial lift before doing so on the job, when and how to perform inspections, and manufacturer requirements. Retraining is required when an incident occurs while using an aerial lift, workplace hazards involving an aerial lift are discovered, a different type of aerial lift is being used, or if an employer observes a worker operating an aerial lift improperly. And OSHA's 1926 subpart L, which covers aerial lifts and scaffolds, requires employers to have each employee who performs work while on a scaffold trained by a person qualified in the subject matter to recognize the hazards associated with the type of scaffold being used and to understand the procedures to control or minimize those hazards. The ANSI SAIA 892 standards differentiate between operators and occupants. An occupant is, for example, someone who is on a work platform but not at the controls. Alan, ain't too proud to beg. Can you hit us with one more fact? Gladly. And here's a key one. Uh, everyone needs fall protection while working on an aerial lift. Uh, quote, employers must ensure the employees tie off at all times when working from an aerial lift, OSHA writes in an August 2011 letter of interpretation. When workers are six feet or higher above a lower level, personal fall arrest systems need to be rigged so that workers don't fall more than six feet and make contact with a lower level. In the general industry standards, a fall arrest or travel restraint system must meet the requirements of subpart I. And body belts, as of January 1998, are no longer an acceptable part of a personal fall arrest system, according to 1926.453B2V. However, the use of a body belt as part of a tethering system or restraint system is acceptable and regulated under 1926.502E, OSHA says. And finally, this is an important one. Both the 1910 and 1926 standards require that employees always stand firmly on the floor of the basket and shall not sit or climb on the edge of the basket or use planks, ladders, or other devices for a work position. Well, thank you so much, Alan, for your work on this story. You covered a lot of ground and, as you've discussed, just lots of things to delineate between you. You did it very well. So treat Alan's feature as well as all other news from around the occupational safety world please pick up the September issue of Safety and Health Magazine or visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional has a unique story. So what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about your path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. You can share your safety origin story by sending a submission to safehealth at nsc.org. From golf carts to minivans to 18-wheelers, a fleet can be as unique as your organization's business. 
But what defines a fleet? And how can you ensure that your workers are staying safe in those vehicles? With us this month to discuss fleets and fleet safety is Ryan Peach, a program technical consultant for driver safety with the National Safety Council. Ryan, we're happy you could be with us this month on the safe side. Welcome to the podcast. Hey guys, good to see you. Uh, great, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, first, Ryan, we have an age-old question. What constitutes a fleet? Is it a certain number of vehicles? Is it certain kinds of vehicles? Explain that to us. Yes, well, and, and the National Safety Council defines a fleet as any vehicle that is used in the course of doing one's job. So if an organization has a single vehicle, and you mentioned, Barry, the golf cart. It could be a golf cart. It could be any vehicle, not just an automobile. Um, or they might have 500 different vehicles. Either way, they might have a fleet. A fleet is often determined by the vehicle ownership and responsibility from the legal side of the house. Uh, however, there's a whole new area that's kind of come in, in the last 10 to 15 years. And we call that the gray fleet. Uh, a gray fleet is a title given to a personal vehicle, which is used for business purposes. In other words, those vehicles are um, fleet vehicles as well, even though the ownership is on the employee, for example. Uh, the company, though, has responsibility, and that's really where this tie to the fleet comes in. Uh, that company has that responsibility to ensure that that employee safely operates that vehicle in the course of doing their job duties. So regardless of who owns that vehicle, it becomes part of a fleet because it's in the course of doing their job. For organizations who may not consider themselves a fleet, do they see the term fleet safety and perhaps think, well, that applies to someone else? Absolutely. And, and Kevin, this is such a, a common occurrence. You know, it, it doesn't happen to me, that, that concept of, of it doesn't happen to me, it doesn't include me. Uh, this happens not only to organizations, but employees also. Many people drive fleet, fleet vehicles to accomplish their work tasks. Uh, for many, driving is not their primary task. In other words, their work may be as a plumber. A plumber, shoot, they don't think about the driving as a necessary skill, right? They're plumbers. But not a single job is possible for that plumber without getting there, getting to wherever their services are needed. And that most oftentimes requires driving or at least some transportation, but they're often driving and often driving a fleet vehicle. The same is true for so many different trades, salespeople, electricians, landscapers, utilities, all disciplines of the construction. When you drive, you may even have your company logo on the vehicle. Think about this, and this is my favorite part. Um, you're driving down the road, it might be in your, your local municipality, and you see this vehicle with this wrap on it. And it may be, you know, John's Insurance Company, whatever. It's plastered all over the side of the car, right? And they start driving erratically. Are you gonna buy insurance from that person? Probably not, right? You're probably gonna, wow, I don't want anything to do with that person. Same is true with the plumbers and anybody else that's driving erratically. That's a huge billboard. And they're driving around town with these billboards on and they're reflecting the company, even though they're representing the company and their behaviors become part of that company. This leads me to that important element of safe fleet driving, being professional. A professional driver has nothing to do with the title, compensation, what you drive, or even how often you drive. 
Being a professional driver is a mentality, a behavior. It's what you think, how you react, and how you drive. A professional driver has the mentality that if they're responsible, they watch out for others. Choose proper following distance, for example, maintain awareness of surroundings at all times. And probably one of the biggest parts of defensive driving, they expect the unexpected. So they're always watching out there. Don't let them get themselves get distracted. They choose defensive driving techniques before, during, and after every trip. So for fleets of all sizes, what are the major issues or pain points when it comes to safety? Now, this is, this is interesting. When we talk about safety professionals um, and, and fleet professionals, it's rather complex, to be honest with you, Alan, because increased risk, lack of resources, and cost. Have you heard those anywhere before? <laughs> right? Everywhere. It's no different here. Let's talk about the risk. Our roads are more dangerous today than they've ever been. The risk that organizations face with regard to their fleets is increasing. Vehicle-related deaths have been the leading cause of death in the workplace for decades. Sadly, these same incidents are absolutely preventable, yet we're on the rise. On on U.S. roadways, we saw 11% increase in fatalities from the year 2020 to 2021. That was following one of the deadliest years in over a decade during COVID. This is troubling for any safety professional, but let's look at these numbers. These numbers come from NSC's um, injury facts, okay? So we saw over 13.3 million crashes in in the United States in 2021. There were 5.4 million injuries and 46,980 deaths on American roadways in 2021. So... Doing some quick calculations, we estimate the cost of those incidents to the U.S. uh, economy was $498.3 billion. That's roughly $38,000 for every incident. And those incidents involved almost 10% of all licensed drivers in the United States. Some interesting little facts. So what does that mean? That's the risk. So as for the resources, The automotive industry is still reeling from COVID, right? We still have a microchip shortage. Uh, The resources, when we talk about fleet safety and fleet managers, vehicles, we, we can't find any replacement vehicles, right? So they're still having trouble sourcing new vehicles. That's forcing organizations to keep vehicles on the road longer, in their fleets longer. That's causing, um, Older fleets, which then require more maintenance, the problem with that is that a lot of the parts that that we need to keep the maintenance up, such as tires, batteries, those are also hard to find these days. So speaking of vehicle maintenance, there isn't great news there either. Increased demand for vehicle maintenance technicians. We have a, a shortage of technicians to work on the vehicles. The shortage of parts, like I just said, has resulted in increased downtime when the vehicle is not on the road, the employee isn't on the road, and they're not being productive, right? So that's a big risk also for organizations in their bottom lines, but also safety. Because if we can't, don't have a park, but we need that person out on the road, many organizations are sending unsafe vehicles out on these roads, and that's a big liability problem. 
So then the last point here is um, when we look at one segment such as delivery drivers, the storm gets worse for them because we have become such an instant society, the same day service, the same day delivery society, as I call it. Technology and market pressures continue to contribute to shrinking delivery windows. In other words, people are demanding so much of these organizations and fleets and drivers. Fleet safety professionals must not allow these demands to compromise safety. Drivers must not use transportation time as a means to make up time in their delivery system. In other words, no driver should be expected to drive faster or more aggressively to make up time on the road, allow extra time and expect delays such as construction and traffic delays. That's the only safe solution moving forward, safe maintenance, safe driving and defensive driving. Ryan, thanks for sharing those. We appreciate it. Let, let's turn the page a little bit. What are some ways that organizations can improve their fleet safety? Uh, great question, Barry. Thank you. Uh, so the number one and most important thing from an organization perspective is to make sure we're qualifying our drivers, making sure that we're doing background, background checks, initial training, ongoing training, and just-in-time training. Just-in-time just training can be um, identified through driver evaluations, ride-alongs, paying attention to those people that are representing your organization while behind the wheel during their, doing their work. The telematics, okay, telematics is a big industry, is a, is a lot of, there's a lot of good information coming out of telematics. Video telematics is used to help defend drivers, but it's also an opportunity for us to learn from mistakes and, and uh, provide that just-in-time training. Uh, so driver qualification is the most important element. It's not just checking to make sure they have a driver's license when you hire them and forgetting about them the rest of their career. It's constantly engaging with those people that drive in the course of their work. And then the next part is properly maintained vehicles. It's difficult. It's expensive. Uh, but we need to make sure that we're putting vehicles out on the road that are safe to operate. And you're giving your, your employees the, the proper tools to be successful. So properly maintain your own, your, your own vehicles and have a, a scheduled service, uh, dedicated service group. If possible, if you're a small fleet, even a one vehicle fleet, you're gonna make sure you're following your manufacturer's recommended uh, service intervals. And then last, it's all part of establishing a culture of safety. We've heard culture of safety a lot. What goes into this for a fleet? You're motivating your drivers. You're engaging your drivers. You're identifying the mentors, finding out who those people are that truly act uh, in a defensive, responsible, and professional manner, and then sharing that with others. Communicating your expectations through policy and holding people accountable for those policies. Policies, we expect to see driver readiness, so preparation, making sure that they're well-rested, making sure they're coming to work sober and ready to work. Um, we're, we have a distracted driving policy, a mobile device policy specifically, not just cell phones. It's all mobile devices, making sure that the drivers understand what the expectations of the organization are around those devices. And then, of course, a drug and alcohol use uh, policy. So not all fleets require a commercial driver's license. And so they're not uh, most drivers on the road that drive in the course of their work are not regulated 
um, through uh, drug tests and, and other things, that company needs to identify what's the, what the expectations are, what the testing experience will be. So th- those are the core, those are the big things that organizations need to think about and, and uh, consider. As we close up with you today, Ryan, what resources would you recommend for listeners who have more questions about fleet safety? Wow. Uh, great, great question. Uh, so many resources. Look, uh, let's just talk about the National Safety Council resources. Uh, every fleet safety professional should have access to the National Safety Council Motor Vehicle Safety Manual. That textbook is absolutely essential for every safety professional. And then, of course, Injury Facts. It's such a great resource available public on NSC.org. Um, the Injury Facts is a great resource for safety professionals to build their own case for safety. And then the Motor Fleet Safety Manual. The National Safety Council Motor Fleet Safety Manual has um, all kinds of examples of policies and uh, expectations on how to execute a safety program. It also leads to the Guide to Collision Preventability. The Guide to Collision Preventability is another resource that we have. The Guide to Collision Preventability comes out of the Motor Fleet Safety Manual, and that resource allows us to deliver our preventability review program. That program is is a third-party independent organization that we will look at incidents within your organization, simply submitting them through our portal, We'll have a third-party independent reviewer taking a look at those four preventable uh, elements. So in other words, if your organization has an incident, a driver in your organization has a crash, for example, they believe that they did everything reasonable to avoid it. They can submit all the case details. That organization can submit it to our portal. We review that, and we make the determination whether there was anything that that driver could have reasonably done to avoid it. And we determine whether it was preventable or not preventable. So 90% of the cases that we review are preventable incidents. uh, But we do have 10% that are found to be not preventable by by that driver, given those circumstances. So those elements all go together in a safety program. And the idea is to learn from past mistakes, those past performances, and implement Things like defensive driving, professional truck driver program, all of our online resources, our distracted driving courses, all of our um, online training into those preventable elements to help prevent things from happening in the future. The last part is fatigue and impairment. Those elements at NSC are, uh, we have a ton of resources. NSC.org's fantastic location to find this stuff. It's those two pieces are way overlooked. They're very important, and that's all part of driver readiness. So those are the resources that I would recommend that you start with, and there are many more to come as we continue to build out our, our catalog and our defensive driving courses and the experience for all the fleet managers and fleet safety professionals out there. Well, Ryan, we thank you so much for sharing your insights with us on this topic. We appreciate you being our guest on the podcast this month. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's great to see you. As we approach the end of this episode, it's about that time to discuss what we've learned in the past month, whether on the job or off. And to get things started, um, I'll start with 
the federal budget picture is coming a little bit more in focus with after the Senate Appropriations Committee approved the Labor, Health and Human Services, Education and Related Agencies Appropriations Bill. Now it looks like OSHA's gonna get a budget decrease, uh, a small one or moderate size one. We'll have to see, especially as this month plays out because the deadline is approaching and on September 30th, uh, otherwise, you know, Congress is going to have to go to a series or of continuing appropriations, or maybe they'll, they'll get a budget deal done. We'll see. I, you know, I don't know that I would necessarily hold my breath on that, but <laughs> stranger things have happened. I suppose the, the Senate bill also gives gives about a $4 million decrease to OSHA, and most of that's coming from the Susan Hardwood Training Grant Program, which would receive $10 million instead of about $12.8 million. Alan, do you remember a time when both kind of bills uh, asked for a decrease in OSHA's budget? Seems a little unusual. It's been a little bit. I think there, there in my six years, I think there has been. I think it, it was early on in my tenure here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a little while, um, since that's happened, especially, I, I mean, I guess, especially with two different parties, um, mm-hmm. in each in control of a different part of Congress. I mean, that was a little interesting. Um, obviously there was the whole, um, debt ceiling agreement that they had to come to as well. So I think that plays a part in some of it, I want to say, I and mean, that's, uh, a bit of conjecture on my part. Um, but, and also, you know, in a negotiation, you know, you're not going to get, you're not, you're going to have to, somebody's going to have to move in a negotiation. So Absolutely. I think this is the Senate's attempt to kind of move toward a, uh, a compromise. Um, Barry, what about you? Well, I would say OSHA is uh attacking the issue of heat in a number of different ways. And, and a couple of ways, as you could say, from stickers to small businesses. And what I mean by that is in August, OSHA released a new fact sheet highlighting the symptoms of heat, illness, and prevention strategies. And they're also offering employers a sticker. And that sticker says, don't wait hydrate. Uh, It's in English and Spanish, and employers can share that with workers who can wear them around the job site and display those. And then also, um, OSHA is asking representatives from small businesses, uh, along with local governments and nonprofit organizations, to weigh in on how a standard to protect workers from heat illness would affect smaller entities. And OSHA is teaming up with the Small Business Administration and a couple other agencies, and they're going to convene a small business advocacy review panel um, in the coming months. Um, so that, that should be interesting and to, to see just where, what direction that goes. Uh, but, um, interesting that they were seeking some input from small businesses. Um, Kevin, what did you learn this month? Learned a little more about MSHA, the Mine Safety and Health Administration. They had a industry stakeholder call in late July and discussed what officials are calling a quote, alarming trend, unquote. And that's the number of miners who have been uh, dying on the job. As of this recording, MSHA has recorded 27 minor fatalities uh, through, you know, mid-August of, of 23. That's fast approaching the 30 that were recorded in 2022. And the year before that, 2021, 
the agency observed 37, and that was uh, ending a run of six straight years in which fewer than 30 miners had died on the job. So that was a large part of, of the call, certainly. Also, they touched upon things that we have often reported about with silica and, and that new proposed rule that's out there. And they had a comment period extension on that. But with uh, with the fatalities, it was discussed that um, not quite half, but a substantial amount, I think about 11, were machinery-related incidents. So discussed a few best practices with, with those as far as curbing those fatalities. And some of what was offered included simply just wearing a seatbelt. They discussed that that still is something that is not frequently happening or, or not happening each and every time. Um, also, just following the manufacturer manual and, uh, and instructions and just staying out of hazardous areas such as um, swing swing areas and pitch points. Did they discuss powered haulage, I'm guessing? Yes, that was that was part of it. There was always pie charts just kind of discussing that and those for Alan or for any other listeners interested in more information on, on these calls, uh, they're archived at msha.gov. And speaking of websites, I was going to, I was going to mention with Barry's story, osha.gov slash heat is a good resource for our, if you want to see all the other, you know, the resources that Barry spoke about, I, I imagine they would have a number of links for that as well. Thanks, Alan. Now it's our listeners' turn. Is there something important that you learned this month? Please share it with us via email at safehealth.nsc.org. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this month's episode. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you spending just a bit of it with us each and every month. We encourage you to visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash podcasts to check out all of our past episodes. That includes episode 18, which covers safety incentive programs and features an interview about keeping workers safe on the road, which perhaps could be a nice refresher course with a greater volume of traffic on the roads with school back in session. We'd also appreciate you rating, reviewing, or spreading the word about this podcast. To find stories such as Alan's feature on aerial lifts and all of the latest news from around the safety world, check out safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on your favorite social media channel. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. Thank you so much, Steve. And a big thank you to all of our NSC colleagues behind the scenes who make this podcast go. Ryan Gruntish, Amy Bellinger, Debbie Meyer, Paul Walensky, Karen Lord, Melissa Ruminski, and Jennifer Yario. We'll be back next month to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, please stay on the safe side.